If your toddler has been diagnosed with autism or is waiting for a diagnosis, you're going to want to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. Happy Ladders is parent-led early autism therapy that empowers you, the parent, to teach your toddler essential developmental skills through play. Studies have shown that the parent-led model is highly effective while eliminating frustration over long wait lists or the worry about losing precious developmental time, all without the disruption of people coming into your home. Happy Ladders includes activities that target 150 essential developmental skills every toddler needs, as well as assessments in four different developmental areas. There's also an exclusive community of parents just like you and professional coaching to ensure success for both you and your toddler. To learn more, get a free trial, and take advantage of an exclusive limited-time offer for my listeners, visit happyladders.com. That's H-A-P-P-Y-L-A-D-D-E-R-S. Use the code THEAUTISMDAD at checkout to save 50% off the monthly membership. Plus, get a free one-on-one session as well as access to the Tantrums and Meltdown mini course. This is a limited time offer, so act now. If your toddler has been diagnosed with autism or is waiting for a diagnosis, you're going to want to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. Happy Ladders is parent-led early autism therapy that empowers you, the parent, to teach your toddler essential developmental skills through play. Studies have shown that the parent-led model is highly effective while eliminating frustration over long wait lists or the worry about losing precious developmental time, all without the disruption of people coming into your home. Happy Ladders includes activities that target 150 essential developmental skills every toddler needs, as well as assessments in four different developmental areas. There's also an exclusive community of parents just like you and professional coaching to ensure success for both you and your toddler. To learn more, get a free trial, and take advantage of an exclusive limited-time offer for my listeners, visit happyladders.com. That's H-A-P-P-Y-L-A-D-D-E-R-S. Use the code THEAUTISMDAD at checkout to save 50% off the monthly membership. Plus, get a free one-on-one session as well as access to the Tantrums and Meltdown mini course. This is a limited-time offer, so act now. Hey, what's up, folks? My name is Rob Gorski, and you're listening to the Autism Dead podcast. I want to thank you, first of all, for taking the time to tune in. I do appreciate that. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, if you woke up this morning and you said, hey, I really want to learn about sensory processing disorder today, you're in luck because we are going to talk about sensory processing disorder. And my guest is Dr. Varlisha Gibbs. She is a mother and an author. She is also vice president of practice engagement and capacity building at the American Occupational Therapy Association. Uh, her area of expertise are autism spectrum disorders, sensory processing disorders, telehealth, neurological disorders, leadership, and family-centered care. Uh, Dr. Gibbs is here to have a conversation about all the things that you've ever wanted to know about sensory processing disorder. So I I have kind of an aggregated list uh, that I've put together of questions that I've been asked uh, over the years or or people frequently ask me about uh, sensory processing disorder. And I sort of figure that the best way to, to learn about a complex condition like sensory processing disorder is to sort of is to sort of learn the mechanics behind it, get a better understanding of, of why it is the way that it is, how it impacts people in real life and what we can do uh, as loved ones and caregivers or just decent people um, to, to help those who are affected by it uh, navigate life. And, you know, this was a fascinating conversation. I learned a lot and I've been dealing with this with my kids for 20 years Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. And we are going to have an awesome conversation about sensory processing disorder. Don't go anywhere. Uh, and we're back. And today I have, uh, Varlisha Gibbs, uh, with us, and we are going to have a conversation about all things related to sensory processing disorder. Um, Thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show. I know I had to reschedule at the last minute because uh, life, you know, in COVID life, land. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I appreciate you understanding. I know, you know, you're a very busy person too. So thank you very much for taking the time. Absolutely. Could you kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, so I'm Varlisha Gibbs and I... The first thing I could say is, is that I am a mother and a wife. That's important, right? Yeah. <laughs> Especially right now of everything that we're going through. Professionally, I am an occupational therapist and I've been an occupational therapist for, I guess, about 18 years now. So um, prior to that, my degree was in psychology 
um, which led me to the road of OT is what we call occupational therapy for short. Um, And so currently I'm working at the American Occupational Therapy Association as the vice president of practice engagement and capacity building, which allows me to really um, engage with our practitioners, um, even with our students that are in the field, trying to continue to evolve, uh, promote our field, especially right now, um, as things are shifting and changing in society as well as in healthcare and our school-based system. So um, I, prior to coming to the association, I worked a lot in school-based practice. I had my own private practice um, in Northern New Jersey for, I guess, about 10 years um, before going into academia where I was um, uh, eventually a chair and tenured associate uh, professor um, working in uh, for a master's of occupational therapy program. So my last position was at Wesley College, which is the first OT program in Delaware. And so that's kind of, that's my passion um, teaching people. So I do a lot of talks. Um, I've authored a few books and um, now I get to share um, my knowledge and work with the team that we can develop resources for not only our practitioners, but our parents, stakeholders, teachers, administrators um, in the field, um, you know, promoting what we do and, and the value that we bring as occupational therapists. And, and there is a lot of value to what you guys bring. Thank um, you. There's a lot of people, it, it, one of the biggest impacts uh, therapy wise on my kids, my oldest is 20. He's going to be 21 in January, which makes me feel way too old. Uh, <laughs> my middle child is 14 and my, my youngest is 12. And with my youngest, especially OT was life altering for him. And, and, and I really, people are, people are always asking me questions about sensory processing disorder and you know, what, like where do kids go for therapy? And they're surprised when they hear something like, well, you take, you know, occupational therapy was the best thing that we could have done for him because it, it helped him to, wow. to to navigate and ground himself and um, mm-hmm. like spatial awareness. Cause, cause they would always describe it as like, um, like he didn't know he was, he was a, he was a uh, sensory seeker. So he was the kind of kid that was like running into walls and, jumping mm-hmm. onto things and like he needed that deep uh uh sensory input and and ot was just it was amazing um before we kind of get into some of the details on that can can you just sort of talk to us about what sensory processing disorder is sure um it's it's a little bit of a challenge right and the reason why i say that is because we know as practitioners as parents our teachers we know that sensory processing disorder is real you see it you've lived it um the challenge is is that it's not acknowledged in that master book, the DSM-5, right, um, that everyone looks at in terms of diagnostic processes, um, so or criteria, I should say. Um, so right now, it, it's not acknowledged, but we do know that it is a, it accompanies autism, for instance, um, that a lot of our children with autism have sensory processing disorders, as well as children with ADHD um, and other diagnoses. And it can, in my opinion, and I think a lot of us would agree, can stand alone. We see it without the comorbidity of autism mm-hmm. or another diagnosis. And what it is, is really the challenging, uh, the difficulty of the body being able to process stimulation. So we take in information from our environment, whether it's light, sound, touch, movement, et cetera. We also process information within our body, interoception, we call it. So, you know, that internal gut feeling, hunger, taste, all of that. And imagine that all those sensory systems have to work at the same time. And we don't think about it much, but think about what your eyes are doing and what your body is doing and, you know, what your heart's doing all at at the same time to kind of integrate it all together to be able to function. So when you have sensory processing disorder, something kind of doesn't go right along that path, right? Whether it's with the taking in of that information, it could be coming in too quickly or, um, you know, getting to our 
brain too slowly. Mm -hmm. The the stimulation could be hanging around a little bit too long. And so the output of that is where we then see the disorder or dysfunction, right? We have this output that's really not optimal for function. So it's that taking in of sensory information and then it's the output, which is motor or behavior. And the output is what we get to see as hyperactivity, um, overstimulation, some children actually are, you know, under responsive, we call it, where they're just kind of disengaged and you don't see a lot of activity. They're far from hyper. Um, you see children that have trouble distinguishing between stimulation, such as um, sound, for instance, having discrimination disorder. So not knowing to pay attention to the teacher's voice versus the kids behind them chattering, right? Being able to block that out. So uh, in summary, sensory processing disorder, there are three main um, types, if you will, that we look at, which is um, sensory modulation disorder. And then we have um, sensory based motor disorders um, as well. And why is the last one escaping me? It's the COVID brain. Not, not exactly COVID. I shouldn't say that. No, I know what you mean. I I judge everything on COVID. I judge everything on COVID time now. Right. Before COVID, after COVID. Yeah, exactly. Pre-COVID brain. Um, Sensory discrimination disorder is the other one. So, um, you know, yeah, time and everything else is just different right now. Um, But those are the the three main overarching forms, types. We call it nosology um, of sensory processing disorder. So it's not just one type. You know, we, we get exposed to children that have a lot of energy. The sensory seekers, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. are cravers, we like to call them. Um, And they get a lot of attention because it takes a lot of our energy. They need a lot of input Mm -hmm. um, physically to the body. But then there's the other types that may not display, you know, as evident to to us. Hmm. I didn't realize it was actually broken down into three types. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to see where, now, can you have, can you have a child present with multiple uh types that's a a great question and and i should say in the world of sensory there are various experts and pioneers if you will right Mm -hmm. so this is something that someone listening may say i don't agree that there's three types there's you know because it depends on who you're talking to and you're listening to so i will say in general i'm not going to set that in stone um Lucy Jane Miller and her work um, with the SPD foundation or network, I believe, I think she's calling it the star center that uh, facility. They, they really have done some research in those three areas. Um, and I would encourage people to look that up. Um, however, um, you know, when you look at those three types, there can be children that kind of wax and wane, right? You go through these ebbs and flows where you could fall into those different categories. So some would say it's called, you know, they have mixed, um, mixed type of sensory processing disorder. Um, I do believe that that is possible because it's possible with us, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think about, I'll give you myself as an example. I used to be formerly a professional dancer. I love to dance. I grew up dancing. So movement is something that I enjoy, but put me in a car. If I'm sitting in a back seat and you ask me to read out the directions to you, I'm going to get motion sickness, right? So I'm now sensitive in that area. So, you know, it could change depending on what sensory system you're referring to, right? Um, And the type of input, whether you're producing it or you're receiving it. So we do see these, these overlapping of the different types. In my opinion, there's usually one that supersedes the other. Right. So if you got, <laughs> well, no, I, I would, I would, I'm trying to, as you're talking about this, I'm, my youngest is our super sensory oriented child. And, you know, he, he likes like the deep pressure, like the weighted blankets. Uh, we just start, I just started him with compression sheets um, mm-hmm. that kind of give him that deep pressure without the actual weight. Um, mm-hmm. But then he doesn't like a shirt on his skin, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. um, there are major issues with feeding, you know, like textures Mm -hmm. and colors and smells. And it used to be like, if they would change and nobody would understand us, they would just say, Oh, he's just a picky eater. He'll eat when he's hungry. And like, he would starve before he would eat something that was 
the wrong color or, <laughs> or, uh, the chicken nugget was misshapen, uh, a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. we've, we've experimented. This sounds terrible. We've experimented with him. I don't mean it like that. I mean, like we've experimented with this. He, right. he can taste the difference between chicken nuggets from different batches. So mm-hmm. we would buy two, uh, Tyson. It had to be Tyson and it had to be in the red bag. And, and then at one point they changed their labels oh, gosh. and that was, that was really bad. So shame on you, oh, Tyson, for changing your labels. Right. <laughs> gosh. Uh, because then it becomes like, it's, it's a totally different thing. Like it can't be the same mm-hmm. thing because it looks different. I mean, but he could, he could taste like individual, he would be good on like hell's kitchen or something like that, where they have to do like those blind taste tests right. because he can taste <laughs> every individual thing. And so he's super sensitive to that. And, yeah. and so I don't know where, where he would fall on. That's a great example. Yeah. Um, you know, and not that it's not great that you have to, you know, yeah. So this is my, this is how I view it and not knowing, you know, your son, um, I would suspect that he is more, uh, hypersensitivity or has more hypersensitivity and over responsive to, to stimulation. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that is even though let's say we love like that deep pressure input to the body is something I enjoy, or I may need to run and crash and throw myself against things or get a big squeeze. Our, we will seek out the sensory system that is, um, how do I say it? That that is the strongest. That's the one that we can rely on, right? That's human nature. It's the mm-hmm. foundational level of human nature of survival. So whatever that thing is that's optimal for us that we can depend on, that is the that's going to be our go-to. So just because a child may love to run and do gross motor activity or get a lot of input to their body, it doesn't necessarily mean that they would fall into what most would call a seeker. They could actually be avoiding they could be an avoider all the way across the board the reason why is i'm going to avoid anything that brings me discomfort and the way i'm going to do that is just to go to the thing that does not give me discomfort i'm going to run and crash Mm -hmm. i never i never i guess i didn't think about it like that like my oldest uh, I have these vivid memories of him when he was real little and we would go and, and pick up like my dad at the airport or something like that. And as there, mm-hmm. and I don't go to the airport very often, but um, at some point there's like these loud buzzers that go off. I don't know if it's letting, you know, like the baggage terminal is kicking oh, out your yeah. stuff. He would take off running every time that would happen. And so sound was something that was really, uh, he was, he had an aversion to, to loud to sudden noises. Um mm-hmm. And then he, he, uh, like pain is different with him. Like you could slam his hand in a car door. Not, not that I'm saying we would slam his hand, but you could dramatically, you could slam his hand in a car door and he'd shake Mm -hmm. it off. But if he had a hangnail or a paper cut, it's like the end of the Mm -hmm. world. And, Mm -hmm. um, that was always, that's difficult to navigate because then you never know, like it almost seems like drama. But, but I don't think it is. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's his, the way that he experiences that sensation is different than the way that I would experience it or you would experience it or any, you know, mm-hmm. somebody else might experience it. And I've always sort of tied that to a sensory thing, but I don't know, maybe that's. Well, you have to think about those systems are actually two different ones. You're talking about the touch, which is tactile, right? Mm -hmm. And the proprioception, which is that deep pressure to your muscle belly um, and to your joints. And so there are two different systems and one being the touch system has a strong connection to pain receptors. Um, And not to get too technical, but how it's kind of mapped out within the layers of your skin. And so there is a strong possibility that you could have the wires being crossed, if you will, in terms of those receptors, you know, the nerves that receive touch, right? So they're receiving that stimulation, those receptors receiving it and misinterpreting that as pain or more intense pain than it needs to be, right? Because we have these free nerve endings that are on your and your skin. Whereas the deep pressure, it's deep, 
we call it deep for a reason, mm-hmm. right? So it's deeper down within the layers of the skin or, and deeper down within the muscle bellies, right? So it takes a lot of pressure. Um, there's one that I'm thinking about, this one receiver, receptor nerve, right? That um, is shaped like an onion. And so it's like when you press on it, you have to press all those layers of the onion down so that it can expand. Mm-hmm. So that's going to take a lot more input than this free nerve ending that's just kind of sitting there on the top of the skin. And if you brush it, it could fire. So right? it's more, so it's maybe more sensitive to the uh, paper touch. cuts and, and things like mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. you know, like if he, you know, banged his hand into the wall or something or tripped and, whatever, something more significant. That's like a deeper, like a bone injury or like a, like a bruise or something like that. It might experience that differently then. Yeah. That's for him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he also set off different aspects of your nervous system. One is fight flight. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is your rest and digestion, right? So deep pressure input. I mean, most of us that like a nice massage or, you know, pressure and that actually calms your nervous system. Whereas the other one sends you off into this fight flight reaction. I've noticed, and this is totally random, but I have noticed, like, I never thought that I had any kind of like sensory, whatever, I've been using a weighted blanket lately and they're amazing. So I don't know. I don't know if that's just like a human (laughs) thing or what, but I've, Mm -hmm. I've, I've found that like when I sleep, I like to sleep putting pressure on my joints, which, Mm -hmm. which is fine to fall asleep. But then when I wake up in the morning, it's like, you know, painful because they've been locked in that same Uh, odd position. Um, mm -hmm. is that kind of like a sensory? Yeah. Um, it is. And you bring up a good point. We all have sensory needs and they're all unique. And depending on who you're talking to, it can sound very weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> but to you, it makes complete sense. We all have that weird sensory thing that we keep to ourselves. We don't need to share, right? <laughs> um, but I get you on the, the positioning. I mean, when I, yeah, I, I have, sometimes I will fall asleep, like with kind of almost like cradle, like, you know, wrapping yeah. my arms in this position and you wake up and it's all, and I also have a little bit of arthritis. So I wake up and I'm all like, you know, uh, twisted and, right? and then you have to stretch. And my husband and I joke about after 40, something happens to your feet where you can't walk when you hit the floor. Right? <laughs> you need a few moments, but we all have this sensory thing and it can shift and change, you know, and that is actually the, the good thing that we have this plasticity, if you will, because if you think about the work that you talked about with occupational therapy for your children, we want the sensory system to be able to shift and change a little bit. That's how we see improvement. Right. So, um, you know, it can go both ways, um, for us, but yeah, we all have our own needs. And so it's not, I think actually proprioception that weighted blanket is something that most, most people actually do enjoy. That is human nature because it's one of your largest and most powerful systems. Um, part of your sensory system in your body it's, and it's your very, various it's calming mm-hmm. you know yeah. like I, I yeah it's it's a it's a very i used to think it was kind of a weird thing like i don't understand how people i mean they feel like they're being crushed um underneath these things but it, it's i mean don't knock it till you try it right i mean it really is uh mm-hmm. it's a cool experience um mm-hmm. we sort of talked about a lot of this but just what are some of the basic signs and symptoms of um, we'll say SPD because otherwise mm-hmm. it's a mouthful to say over and over again. Yeah. Um, what are some of the symptoms uh, that parents should kind of look out for, bef- you know, to, mm-hmm. to kind of indicate that their, their child may need some help. Okay. So some of the basic things without going technical, right. You may have a child that, um, I think you mentioned your son not wanting to wear certain clothing, mm-hmm. right? Um, that could be one and not, and you want to make sure that you're not just looking at these things that I'm sharing in isolation, right? right? It should be that this is affecting their function, their ability to socialize, to engage, to, you know, it should be um, impacting them in other ways, not just that they like to wear certain clothes and they, right. this is their styling, you know? So that, um, you know, not liking certain textures with food, 
um, could be one in terms of avoiding, sensory avoiding. They may seek out a lot of input. You may have a child that has hyperactivity, like that likes to climb up on things and jump down and crash. And you're thinking this is completely dangerous and why are they doing it? And then they get up and laugh and run away, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, just like getting a, a lot of input to the body, whether it's with movement or pressure to the body, um, you have some children that will let's say go in to hug their parent and they are just squeezing the heck out of their ribs. Right. You may mm -hmm. notice that you may notice it in school age children with writing or coloring that they may press down too hard. They're breaking pencils. You see crayon shavings all over the place. Right. Yep. Um, some children uh, have a preference in terms of temperature. They will enjoy wearing a pair of shorts if, or nothing at all, if they could, and go outside in the cold air yeah. right? in the middle of winter time, if you're on the East Coast. Um, so that, you know, those those kind of behaviors that we're thinking, I could never, right? Like I could never go outside and stand. I mean, some of us could, I guess, but you know, that they're, they're seeking this input to their body that we may not be able to quite understand. Um, maybe they're having challenges with sleeping. That's another red flag. Um, you know, so they're having um, difficulty with regulating their arousal, um, whether it's regulating it to to calm and relax or regulating it enough to have enough stimulation to attend and participate and engage with other children or at school. Um, so uh, those are just a few, you know, different red flags. Also, I would say in terms of their motor system, you may see clumsy like behaviors. Um, they may have difficulty with their fine motor skills on um, being able to button and zipper and those mm -hmm. types of things. Um, core posture, yeah. tie their shoes. Yes. Um, we know that sensory and motor, the sensory motor system are highly connected. So the motor is just the behavioral output we get to see, right? The sensory is neurological. It happens in the body. So how do you know, because I, I, I've, I've had this question many times as an example, because I think it's the easiest example. Like, how do you know you have the difference between just like a picky eater and, mm -hmm. and a child who has there's there's sensory aversion. Like there is something that is just intolerable mm -hmm. uh, to them. That's yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I would say with all of this that I'm sharing, that I always encourage um, if you think that there's something, you know, a red flag to seek out um, an evaluation, mm -hmm. right? Speak with your medical provider and then seek out um, an occupational therapy evaluation um, or consultation to start. In terms of the, the picky eating, um, there, there's a, and I have two, I had both of my children, one of them definitely in the beginning stages of life till now, right? Very limited in terms of like what I want to eat. Now we're getting better because teenagehood, you need to mm -hmm. eat, right? You get hungry. So, um, <laughs> but back then it was like only this and only that. However, I knew that I could still present something new, right? And we could try it and we may not like it. Um, but it wasn't, for instance, having a complete meltdown. Some children actually get nauseated, right? Um, even in the presence of seeing something, they, they may, push and run away. They make it aggressive, right? With, with being presented with something that they don't want to eat. Um, and so it's, it's more of a really over, over response to that stimuli versus just simply, I don't like it. I don't like how it tastes or, you know, there's usually a correlation to the texture of the food. So it may not be the taste so much. It could be the texture. Um, and there also, a lot of people don't talk about this, but there could be a connection to the auditory system. So if you've ever kind of like bitten down on a squeaky piece of like beef, right? And you hear that, that squeak, that right? Noise, yeah. For that noise, um, which doesn't happen too often. But if you have someone that is hypersensitive, it could happen quite often for them. And so guess what? Well, I'm going to avoid meat that I have to chew in that way. And I might avoid crunchy things that are going to sound really loud in my head as I'm chewing. And so it's going to be like yogurt, chicken nuggets, mac and cheese, maybe French fries. That's not, that aren't too crispy. right? Yeah. That's, we had like, um, my youngest is the most sensory oriented. I think I've, I've said that 
he had for the longest time, there were like five things on his menu and that was it. And then, like I said, Tyson changed the label on one thing. And then that one thing got removed because he won't, Ooh. he won't touch it anymore or wouldn't touch it anymore. And then, then it's like, like, what do you, like, what do you do? And, uh, you know, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming for parents because they want their kid to eat. A lot mm-hmm. of people don't understand that this is sensory related. And, yeah. and I, I had so many people tell me, well, just, you know, put something out there. If he's hungry, he'll eat. I, I no. had to get to the point where I was telling him like, look, like how hungry would you have to be to go eat out of the cat litter box? Because that's how hungry he would have to be to eat something right. that, that's equally offensive to him. Like the thought of doing that to, to most people is like, not like, like that's awful. Like I'd never do that. Well, mm-hmm. the chicken nugget isn't perfectly round. So to him, it's the same thing. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a very, oh, it's, it takes a lot of patience. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And it's expensive because you go through food. Um, we would remake things over and over and over again because there were just slight mm-hmm. things that were off that would just, but he has, as he's gotten older, he's, um, started trying new things and he's actually started cooking for himself. Uh, oh, that's great. And, and that was, that was the trick because he, he, he starts experimenting with things because, and then once he makes it, he has to try it. He's got this like compulsive need to try whatever Ooh. it is that he made. And he's finding that he likes things that he didn't think he would like before. And, and so we're, we've been able to, you know, expand that menu uh, a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I, I really hope people hear what you were saying. It really is like these kids are not just being difficult. It's, no. it's, it's a, it's a, it's just the way they're wired. I mean, they, they can't, they can't just work um, mm-hmm. past that. And, and then that leads me to the question of overstimulation. Um, mm-hmm. When, when kids become overstimulated, uh, too much sensory input. Like the classic thing is you take your kid to the store and they hear the lights buzzing and the, all the people talking and um, mm-hmm. there's so much activity and they just take so much in that they overload and then they mm-hmm. have a meltdown. What is sort of like what causes overstimulation and then mm-hmm. what, how does the meltdown sort of resolve that? If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, I, I usually, when I talk about this, I give an example of an airport and it's funny you mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Right? Um, so if you're going through, let's say you're going on a trip and you go through the airport, um, you have to go through security first, right? Before you can board the plane. Now, if there, let's say you go, like I did one year, I flew out on Mother's Day to give a, a talk. Right? So um, there were a lot of people you know, traveling that day. So you can imagine, I mean, the, the lines were wrapping around and this was before the TSA pre-check where you can just kind of slide through. So there were so many people that, you know, it was just a lot of noise and a lot of stimulation. And we're all trying to get through the security to get to our flight on time. Right. Mm-hmm. So that security gate, we have a similar, I'm using this as an example of kind of um, aligning it with our nervous system. We have a security gate that's somewhere between our, our spinal cord and our brain, right? And so all that information gets to sensory information from the environment gets to come in through your body and end up most of it, most of it gets to go through this security system before your brain can make sense of it. So imagine, you know, it's good if you have one person going through security gate and then another one, right? Imagine an influx of people trying to run through your security gate at the same time, right? That same area is where your arousal system is. And so the more stimulation coming in, the more aroused you're going to be. And then the brain doesn't really have, we have a couple of filtering mechanisms that filter out the information and sends it where it needs to go. Well, those filtering mechanisms aren't going to work efficiently because there's too much information coming through. And all of this is happening in these lower parts of your nervous system before you even get to the front part of your brain where you can make sense of it. Mm 
This is your same area for your emotions. And so you kind of get stuck in that lizard brain area. You're kind of stuck in, you know, survival mode. Um, There's not a whole lot of conversation that can happen in that moment, right? Your body is reacting based upon just being able to protect itself. And so the the overreaction is meltdown is um, the fight flight system kicking in your, you know, the body is over aroused. There's too much coming in too much stimulation. Some of it could actually be painful. Mm-hmm. Um, you can imagine when like, let's just say you were that TSA agent, this scenario I just gave you and your job was to make sure no one came through with any weapons or I don't know, a bottle of water for whatever reason. Right. And all <laughs> of these people are moving pretty quickly through and you're on high alert. You know, it's, it's, it's nerve wracking. Right. So imagine when your body goes through that fight flight system, mm-hmm. you know, your eyes are dilated, your, your pupils are dilated, your ears are actually taking in information more intensely. Um, and that could actually cause you discomfort. And so when, you know, you mentioned your child going into the supermarket, it could actually be causing discomfort or somewhat pain to the body. And guess what? What do you do when you are feeling that? You cry, you try to leave or remove what's causing that discomfort. Mm -hmm. And that is the meltdown in itself. That is the avoiding piece of it. And let me escape this scenario so that I can get back to my happy place. Right. So it's kind of just a reaction. And it's, it's all involuntary, right? I mean, it's not like a child. Involuntary. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a, it's not necessarily a choice. And I always, I always, um, just tell people like when you see a child, well, I mean, people, people will always assume people tend to assume the worst, you know, like it's a spoiled brat or parents are terrible, whatever kidneys disciplined. But mm-hmm. a lot of times when you see that the child's in distress, you know, and yeah. they are, they're either in pain or they're, they're so overwhelmed. And I've always looked at meltdowns as sort of their body's way of purging all that overload, mm. you know, it's like that, uh, like a, reset, like, a, like a circuit right? breaker kind of thing. Like you, you yeah. trip that circuit breaker and you know, I mean, yelling at a kid who's having a meltdown is the opposite of what needs to happen. You know, I mean, and, and so that, that that's one of the dealing with just the autism side of things in general, like meltdowns are one of the most misunderstood kind of phenomena that occurs in, mm. in that, uh, community and, and, you know, even in 2020, it's still a common place for, for people to be judged, uh, based yeah. on that. And so I, I, I appreciate your, uh, your explanation and insight on that. So thank you. You're uh, welcome. Yeah. When I, I had suffered a major back injury when I was, I was a firefighter paramedic and I suffered a major back injury right before nine 11. And I went to um, physical therapy and some of occupational therapy. Um, when, when my kids went to OT and PT, uh, I was sort of expecting it to be the same thing as it was for me as a grown up, And it was a very different, uh, thing. Like it seemed like it's built more around play and, mm-hmm. and things like that. So is there, is there a difference between um, like OT for kids and, uh, adults? Yes. Um, you know, our job is really, we're going to focus on, you know, how that individual is occupying their time, right? What's developmentally appropriate for them. Uh, and so the occupation of a child, one of the primary occupations, um, areas of occupation, I should say is play, right? That's, that's, that's important to them. It's important to their development. Um, And it's also a way to engage. Uh, So, you know, I would give an example of working in a school system. And if you're working with younger children, um, we, some of our children start school at age three, right? I'm coming from earlier intervention and you're working with those younger children. They may have a goal for handwriting, but that's not going to be my primary focus, right? I need to be able to build that rapport. I need to be able to work on things that meaningful to them 
that's going to bring them joy and that they need um, in order to function um, at that level, at that stage of life that they're in. So play may be a way that we engage and we're still going to work on strengthening, let's say, their fine motor skills um, so that they can eventually do handwriting and being able to, you know, do self-care activities. So we're, we're kind of sliding it in there. You know, my husband used to joke when I first started um, years ago in early intervention, I would leave with all these games and a big therapy ball and putty. And he's like, you literally play all day long. How's that work? (laughs) Like, don't be mad at me for choosing a great career. (laughs) Uh, But, but, you know, I joke and say that, but we know that sometimes that therapy got thrown at me, right? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the putty, the putty. putty, Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, it, it does look a little bit different depending on where you're providing the service. We also work in mental health facilities. That's going to look a lot different than someone that had a back injury. So you have to sort of adapt what you do to the people that you're working with, basically. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how is, how is um, SPD diagnosed? Like, is that mm-hmm. something that that as an occupational therapist you would do, or is that something like a a pediatrician, like they suspect something and then they refer them to an an occupational Mm -hmm. therapist? Yeah. Well, a little bit of both. Um, And that is that challenging piece I mentioned in the beginning. Uh, So when I had my private practice, I would see children and I would know, I'm guessing like, you know, just from looking at them and what the parent is telling me, well, this looks like sensory processing disorder. And so the next step for me would be to do an, um, an actual assessment that um, is evidence-based, you know, that's been researched that can tell me if they do and how it's presenting. The challenge is, is being able to then submit to the insurance company, if it's an insurer um, to be, to get that approval. Um, if it's presenting without another diagnosis, sometimes I would receive referrals from the pediatrician, um, or the psychologist, um, they would give me referrals and they would write sensory processing disorder on it, which was as an occupational therapist, it's like wonderful when you see someone acknowledging this disorder that, you know, really is causing so many obstacles and challenges for our children and families. However, you know, it's a challenge of being able to use that script because now, you know, I, I, I may not be able to get reimbursed for that. And so I will say my job now at, Amer- at the American Occupational Therapy Association, the AOTA, we have staff members that are working diligently to advocate for us, um, you know, with insurers to be able to acknowledge sensory processing disorder as we all do. And as you've expressed as a parent, that this is something that's accompanied your children. Um, and so it, the diagnoses, it's the clinical diagnoses, you know, for you to be able to provide services um, and acknowledge it even in an IEP for school. Yes. will come through the occupational therapist. Uh, do we know what causes SPD, like I know, you know, there's, it's closely tied. It's it's a very common comorbidity with, with autism, but Mm -hmm. do we know, is it genetic? Is it, I mean, have they been able to sort of pinpoint exactly what it is that's going on? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, I wish I could answer (laughs) as clearly (laughs) as I would like to. Um, We have great researchers that are continuing this work. Um, I will say, you know, we don't have a lot of answers in regards to that. Very similar to autism, right? Of not having that straightforward, you know, cause, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had some, I want to call it anecdotal, kind of off the cuff, uh, you know, research of seeing a lot of, and not, this is not to trigger or cause parents fear, but some of my children that were born prematurely, mm-hmm. I have seen that. Um, there are different. Creamy. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the, yeah. So I, I, I often tell my, if I'm giving a workshop, I tell, you know, the attendees to, if they can, if they're allowed to, and they have access, look back at the history uh, in terms of the birth history 
And there's a large percentage, um, at least of the children I service, that were premature and some significantly premature. Right. So we know that those areas of the brain um, help you to process the input. Um, it starts to kind of, you know, it, you need those last few weeks of, you know, gestation for them to really fine tune their wiring. So um, that could be um, a cause. There's also a connection to some children that were not in the most optimal environments in terms of when they were infants or even in utero, right? So the, the parent experiencing trauma while carrying the baby or, um, you know, substance abuse while carrying the baby, um, infants that were uh, in different countries that may be in orphanages that we may not really see here, but, you know, mm. on their back, spending a lot of time in a crib on their back without a lot of touch. We know that the, the sensory system develops through experience, right? Through input from others, starting with that caregiver and then also experiencing the environment. And when that is lacking, that is when you may see that. So you may also see this in areas of poverty, um, perhaps there isn't the ability to experience play, um, you know, in a way that is organized. So you may see a child that is very disorganized. They may come to school present in one way and a parent saying, well, we don't see that at home, right? Because they're adapting to that disorganized environment, if you will. So there's also that environmental piece of it. But I have had parents tell me that have adopted children not just from out of the country, but also through the foster care system that they've also experienced some of these symptoms of sensory processing disorder with their children. Hmm. Um, here's, here's my last question in this, in this uh, area. Why is it that my son can wear a shirt one day and then not be okay with it the next is, is that, um, that can be very frustrating as a parent because it seems inconsistent, right? And, and you would sort of feel like this would be a, a consistent thing, but is it, is it, um, well, I guess what, is that possible? Like, is that something that happens? It is. And we can't ignore that there's other factors that come into play, right? We're dynamic systems as humans. So um, there could, it could be something to the effect of, um, almost obsessive compulsive type of behaviors in terms of I liked it yesterday, but I don't want to wear this again. I want to, you know, like there, maybe there's, I often would say that there was like with some of my children that I worked with, that they had the secret pattern that they just wouldn't share with me. But once I got the code, I'd be able to, <laughs> you know, navigate them a little bit better. And I, you know, I had this one kid and I would tell me, I would ask him, tell me what the number is because he had to stand at the door and rock a certain amount of number, you know, times before he would go through, but each day it would change. And I would say, what is the pattern? Just let me know. <laughs> right. So I, I, I believe that they have this in their mind of, you know, this order. So it could have something to do with obsessive compulsiveness, um, or did the shirt get washed? And now it feels a little differently. Now it smells a little differently, right? Um, maybe there's a thread that got stretched, you know, so that could be the case that. as well. That's mm -hmm. interesting. Is there, is, is there also something to like, like maybe they're having an okay day and mm -hmm. their ability, like I've always looked at it as like in my head is like, there's this threshold that he has and he can cope with like this much today, yeah. anything beyond that. And you know, his shirt will come off, his socks will come off. Uh, food will become very difficult. Uh, to find mm -hmm. something that he'll eat. Um, he might, you know, he's big into like high fives. That'll break your hand, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. and, and so maybe like, is there like a threshold maybe that they can manage, but then when it becomes too much, so like maybe this day he was doing okay and he was able mm -hmm. to cope. And then the next day, maybe there were additional stressors or didn't sleep well or, and then he doesn't have those, that the same resources available Is that. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. There, we all have a threshold that we, um, you know, operate within. And so once you reach the, the peak of that threshold, um, what happens is, you know, you have a, a firing 
right? That happens a neurological, you know, electrochemical reaction in our body, right? Mm-hmm. And so your your nervous system itself has this threshold where once that happens, right, and the firing occurs, to follow that is kind of like a disengagement, right? And this is this is on our neurological level, but then we get to see it behaviorally. Um, that literally the body kind of, in a way, shuts down. You know, you're no longer available. Um, you're no longer available to process this stimulation, whether it's the parent's voice telling you to do something, being able to sit in a chair, wear these clothes. Um, yeah, you can, you can definitely reach a threshold. And depending on how much you had to eat, if you slept well, if you're not feeling well, that threshold kind of changes. So there could be a lot of sort of triggering events that kind of go unnoticed by me as a parent, but mm-hmm. that are very noticeable to him that can sort of, um, people who have fibromyalgia, there's like that thing where they, they have spoons. Like if you've, have you heard that Where like they wake up every morning and they have so many spoons and, Ooh. uh, you know, in order to get the kids ready for school, they had to spend 10 spoons. I don't know how the spoon yeah. thing got started, but, mm-hmm. but it sort of reminds me of, of that because, you know, maybe there, there were days where I couldn't get him dressed to go to school. And, and I would notice that if he had a rough night, like maybe he had a nightmare and he wakes up the next morning and he can't tolerate clothes. But if he had a good night's sleep and he slept through the night, he could get up and get dressed and go to school, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it was, I just wanted to address that because what I've heard from people at, at times was that if they can do it yesterday, they can do it today. And that, right. I, I don't know that that's fair <laughs> to, right. to approach it that way because it's such a sort of dynamic fluid uh, situation. And, and I don't like when anybody makes assumptions. Um, but I, I just wanted to, to kind of plant that idea in, in people's heads because just because they can do it today doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be able to do it tomorrow mm-hmm. or the next day. It, it is sort of an ebb and flow yeah. know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we, we sort of talked about the, the therapies and stuff with, with OT. Uh, what, what is a sensory diet? Mm-hmm. So a sensory diet is really giving the body what it needs throughout the day. Um, so I often stress it should be proactive, not reactive. It should be something that is provided uh, frequently um, and whole body. So I would recommend different um, resources being available to the child and activities. It could be going for a walk. It could be getting deep pressure and put, you know, through uh, sitting in a beanbag chair. Um, It could be gross motor activity where they're able to, you know, run and jump and crash for a little bit or go outside on a swing set and um, something for their mouth where they're, you know, getting something that is um, crunchy if they need to have something alerting. So it's really giving sensory input for the whole body throughout the day, every couple of hours. Um, And so it's really working along with that practitioner, whether it's an occupational therapist um, or occupational therapy assistant um, that can help to provide ideas um, and strategies for the sensory diet that you're going to give that child. So it should be very unique. Every diet, you shouldn't have this prescribed. It's not like a keto diet where everyone does this, right? It's not it's that's a, a little different. Kind of, it's not a cookie cutter. No. Is it a, is it a give and take? Are there things that you have to add? And then are there things that you want to avoid? Like, uh, like if it's bright lights that are a problem or loud noises, you know, part mm-hmm. of the sensory diet, would it be to eliminate some of that stimulus or, or try and limit yeah. it or it, it really depends on who's providing it. Right. Um, I often, you know, will tell teachers and parents, there's a time for intervention, right. Where we're trying to work on something. And then there's a time where you really don't want to go there. Right. Like if you're trying to have a child adjust to the lighting in a classroom, doing that, you know, having, um, you know, bright lights on and experiencing something in the middle of a group activity and trying to force that it's not going to go well. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, we want to do things that that's really going to help them start to process better by targeting their sensory areas of strength. 
Right. So I mentioned that earlier. Um, and this is uh, some of this is my opinion as well. I will say some people may have a different take on it, um, but I want them to have various sensory experiences, but I'm not trying to trigger them while doing so. Right. Um, and that's why it should be whole body, because let's say if we're really concerned about um, their ability to eat different foods, or you're trying to target their auditory system, people tend to really focus on those things during a sensory diet where you're missing the dynamic, you know, aspect of the body. You, you have to target the whole body throughout the day. And so I'm not going to just focus on the lighting or the sound. I'm going to give them pressure to their body or allow them to get input to their joints. All of this is really working on kind of that rewiring of the nervous system in general. So it really should be targeting other systems as well. Um, do, do kids outgrow SPD? I mean, we know there's adults with SPD, so obviously it doesn't happen all the time. But is it something mm -hmm. that people can outgrow or do they just learn to sort of compensate? Yeah, I think, you know, I think they learn to compensate and it may just look differently. Maybe we wouldn't, if we did an assessment, perhaps they wouldn't score as having, you know, a disorder. Um, but someone that liked to chew their T-shirts, right, growing up in high school, maybe they chew gum quite often, right? So you find these ways of compensating. All right. And, and I guess the last question that I have in this, um, there is, I, I, I feel very strongly OT is a very positive thing, right? I want mm -hmm. my, I've always tried to strike a balance where I would challenge my kids. Like I always challenge them, but I, mm -hmm. but there has to be a line that, that you don't cross because too much is too much. Um, some people feel like, uh, when you're desensitizing kids to things that that's almost like a punishment or it's cruel. Mm. I have, I, I imagine if, if you, if you were to do it in a way that was not in the child's best interest, I could, I could see that. But like, I want my kids to be able to navigate the world as best they can, because I won't always be here to help them do that. And, mm -hmm. and because the world is not going to adapt to them, there is a point where they're going to have to adapt to the world. And so, you know, if it's like putting on a shirt or something like that, it's, you know, Emmett, let's put the shirt on and let's count to 10, you know? And mm -hmm. then if you can't take it, take it off, you know, but at least we kind of go through the motions and we try and maybe it can be 15 seconds the next week or 20 seconds, or maybe he can wear it for an hour or two hours or every other day. Is mm -hmm. that, have you, have you heard of that being controversial or? Yeah. You know, I remember hearing someone say, you know, that we were discussing a colleague that we both knew of. Right. And I had worked with this individual and we kind of had a similar kind of practice and, and philosophy really speaking to what you just described. And the other individual said, Oh yeah. You know, I, I just find that, you know, that form of work is just cruel. And I was taken back by that. You know, I'm thinking, wow, like, you know, she was like, I, I feel like it's just something we should not be crossing that line. Right. So I've had, I've heard people say this before and I, I do agree. Of course, anytime you're working with people and children, just in general, you have to be very careful. You know, my job is not to torture someone right. to eat this food, right? No, there is a fine line. However, if we allowed them to stay in that bubble, would they ever leave? I mean, would you, if it's your comfy place and everything's how you like it. And unfortunately that's not reality, you know? So we're doing them a disservice if we don't give them that exposure to those things. And we do it in baby steps and, you know, a, a schedule, you know, we, we have methods to do so versus just throwing it at them. If it's a shirt or food, we try to desensitize before presenting it. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, there used to be things like, I remember they had the, the big box of beans, dried beans. And, mm -hmm. and he would, he would walk through a barefoot and there was something about it that he, he didn't, he didn't like that at first, but mm -hmm. you know, he would do it a little bit at a time and, and they would just present him with these challenges, right? You would just, you would, mm -hmm. you challenge him. Like I challenge my kids, but you have to have realistic expectations. And 
And like you said, you're not there to torture them. You're there to help them slowly adjust to something because is it, is it Mm -hmm. cruel to help them adjust or is it cruel or crueler to help them or, or to allow them to stay in a place where something is so disruptive in their life that it impacts them, you know, going forward, Right. you know, um, exactly. Helping them to self-regulate is, is a skill that they can use for the rest of their lives. And mm-hmm. if you, if you rob them of that opportunity and they can't manage these things on their own, or they can't find a way to manage them, or they can't learn to cope with certain things, you know, when you're looking at employment opportunities or education or just interacting with other people, you know, you're setting up obstacles for them that they may not be able to overcome down the road. Uh, mm-hmm. So I just, I just wondered what your, what your thoughts were on that. Yeah. Um, and I guess before we go, do you have any sort of parting advice for parents who are trying to figure out like, is this SPD or is this just my child being difficult? Mm-hmm. Cause kids even with SPD can be difficult. I mean, cause they're kids. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I, I would say um, you can certainly, I, if you're a parent wondering, go, you can go to our website um, at uh, AOTA.org. That's for the American Occupational Therapy Association. Um, you could even Google AOTA and sensory processing disorders. There's some um, fact sheets for, for families, um, tip sheets and um, things that can kind of direct you. Uh, if you have a school age child, I would say certainly speak to the school's um, you know, special education department and investigate a consultation or evaluation. Um, and the same thing with going through your medical provider um, would be the first step. And I, and I would say, you know, one thing I, I didn't mention, but you kind of alluded just in your examples of how you um, work with your children is as parents, regardless of how your child is presenting, I have to do this too. There's something I call reciprocal regulation. So working on your self-regulation, which is a challenge, we know, um, but, you know, we, we have to do that step as well. So if you're suspecting that there are some challenges with your child um, and you're not exactly sure where to start, that's one thing you can do is start with yourself. You know, if they're having a meltdown, um, speaking to them, it's probably going to make it worse. So working on doing deep breathing for yourself, taking those moments to give yourself deep pressure and using the weighted blanket for yourself. Right. Like you mentioned. So. Yeah. It's, it's sitting right over there. I, I, I yeah. really like it. <laughs> um, where can people find you? So we know I'll, I'll have all the information in the show notes so people can just click instead of having to remember. But uh, for mm-hmm. those people who don't want to do that and just want to hear what you have to say, Mm-hmm. What, uh, where can they find you? Um, well, that's my, my day job. You can also find me, um, through drvgibbs.com. Um, I do some outside engagements as I, as I mentioned, uh, and I have a book self-regulation and mindfulness, and that is, you can find it anywhere and you can find books, Amazon, um, wherever. <laughs> Very cool. And I'll have links to that. So you guys can just click and, and find it. Um, mm-hmm. I really appreciate your time. This was, this was a very fascinating conversation for me because like when, when people ask me what the hardest part of like all three of my kids are autistic and the, the autism part of it is, is not as challenging for me as a sensory part of it is. And I don't think people realize just how impactful sensory processing issues can be. And mm-hmm. I'm always striving to try and raise awareness and, this was fantastic. So thank you very, very oh, much. Thank you. I'm happy to do it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. You guys uh, stay safe. My best to your family. And you too. Uh, I'll catch you later. Okay. Thank you. Thanks a lot. All right, All right Rob. Bye. Bye. Before I close things out today, I want to give a huge thank you to uh, Varlisha for coming on the show and talking to us about sensory processing disorder. Um, as I'm recording this, I'm sitting here thinking, I just turned 42 and so I have been a parent, I've been an autism parent for, for half of my life now. And, and one of the biggest challenges, and I keep saying, I keep going back to this, but one of the biggest challenges over the last 20 years tends to revolve around sensory processing disorder. And it really is, you know, like I don't deal with it myself personally. Uh, so I don't really have firsthand knowledge of, of what the experience is like, but I have, I have learned enough through my kids 
and the challenges that they faced to, to have a better understanding than maybe most people. Um, but I learned so much today and, and it's so important that we, we never stop trying to learn about these things because knowledge and insight and experience, you know, it'll help us to, to better help our loved ones who are struggling with, with things like this. So thank you very much, Felicia, for coming on the show again. I really do appreciate your time. I know we had to reschedule, uh, at the last minute previously and, and, and you still worked with me. So thank you for understanding that life happens. Um, you guys can check out her book. It'll be linked in the show notes below. Uh, all of her social information and website will be there as well. So you can locate her uh, that way. As for me, you can find me at theautismdad.com. All of my social links are at the top of the page. Uh, I think that's about it. I'm going to try and get next week's episode on time. Uh, maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. But I'm going to try. Uh, so I hope you guys have a great weekend. Please remember to stay safe, social distance, wear a mask, wash your hands, listen to our public health care professionals. They're trying to keep us alive. Um, wear a mask, wear a mask, wear a mask, wear a mask, wear a mask. This is not going to go away until we uh, do what we got to do. So uh, stay safe, have a great weekend, and I will talk to you guys next week, hopefully on time. Thanks. Bye. Autistic kids can sometimes struggle to learn new skills such as riding a bike, reading, or simply having a conversation to a high level of proficiency and automaticity. Brainiac is a brain enhancement program that gets to the root of the problem. It builds stronger brain and body connections that elevate learning capacity within four to six months. Brainiac cross-trains motor movement, visual, auditory, and cognitive thinking connections using fun, interactive video games. Strengthened connections allow kids to learn new skills and perform them automatically with more confidence and greater independence. Brainiac is for homes and schools. Visit canoe.com, that's K-I-N-U-U dot com, and be sure to use the code THEAUTISMDAT at checkout to save $500. It's a limited time offer and it will expire on May 31st.